Hey friends, uh, we are, uh, my name's Matt, if, you, if we haven't met yet, um, good to weirdly, oddly, unilaterally meet you, um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to be here and, and to um, have, uh, to, to get a chance to talk about these passages that we're going to be looking at uh, this afternoon. We're continuing our summer series on um, the, the kingdom of God. We're leaning into what it is to behold the kingdom of God of God, the rule and reign of God, the world as it was always meant to be, the world as more than just itself, the world at home having become the home of God. And the kingdom is that home for which we long, the one that um, in which we and our friends and our family and our neighbors and our enemies, along with all the rest of the natural world to which we belong, are at home with one another in being at home with God. Where relationship with God and God's good purposes knit together every good thing into um, that, that home that all of us long for. So Josh um, kicked off um, a couple, uh, kicked off our series a couple of weeks back with this pivotal teaching on the kingdom that captures, I think, this way that the kingdom sums up our longings. He's, he read this this teaching of Jesus. Jesus said, "Seek first the kingdom of God, and every good thing that you desire." will be, and all these things will be added to you, right? Seek first the kingdom and every good thing that you desire. He'd just been talking about, you know, food and clothing and, 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 uh, and, and something to eat and something to drink. All of these good things will come along with um, the kingdom. Why? Because when you seek first the kingdom, every good thing that you desire finds its place and becomes what you didn't even know you were desiring, what you didn't even know enough to know to desire. This is so typical of the way that Jesus pitches the kingdom. The kingdom, he says, is this sort of, in times, right, he'll say, it'll sound like the kingdom is this like sort of win-win. Seek first the kingdom and even the good things you gave up are returned to you, improved, enriched, deepened. The choice between the kingdom and any other good thing we desire is, in some sense, a false choice. Because every good thing we desire is itself wrapped up in the kingdom. Its goodness is resident in the fullness of the kingdom. And yet, the way into the kingdom is to seek the kingdom first. To seek the kingdom ahead of any of these other, even any of these other good things. And surely to seek the kingdom ahead of that shiny but empty and bankrupt thing that might capture our eye. And so the kingdom has this way of offering to us every good thing for which our hearts long, and yet for just that reason, turning our lives upside down. Who knew that getting everything you really wanted could be so revolutionary? But the nature of our longing and the nature of the world that God has created mean that just that is the case. And so today, we want to look at two passages that lay out this gospel pattern. And, and, and this is personal for me. These are two passages that lay out the gospel pattern that turned my life upside down. Passages in which Jesus calls his disciples, and today we'll look at the calls of Simon the fisherman and Levi the tax collector. 
And it happens again and again in the Gospels when Jesus calls his disciples, they leave behind whatever had defined them to that point, and they go and follow Jesus. And I'll never forget the way that, that on that first, um, uh, the first time I really saw this in the Gospels, I was in a, in a Bible study my first year in college, and I'll never forget the way that that Bible study just let that just land. He said, look, all of these, all of these people, they're identified a particular way, and Jesus calls them, and whatever had been their identity, they left behind to follow Jesus. And so he simply asked us, what defines your life? And are you willing to leave that behind if that's what it took to follow Jesus? And when I was a first-year college student, it was pretty obvious what like defined my life. I mean, I was 17 years old. There wasn't a whole lot going on in my life other than I just applied to college and gotten into college. That was, that was basically like the major, as I understood it, that, those were the major life events um, in my life. I had put everything in my life. Um, if you've applied to school, maybe you've had this experience. I felt like I'd put every detail about my life on a set of pieces of paper, and I sent those to someone I don't know where, and they said, okay, good. I mean, that was, I basically, I thought that's basically all that had happened in my life to this point. So it was easy for me to answer this question of what defined my life. What defined my life was being a Yale student. And so what would it mean that Jesus was saying, come follow me, don't be defined by Yale anymore? I mean, I'd only been defined by Yale for like eight weeks, but in certain ways I had, everything that I had been about for those first 17 years was packed into this identity, right? Everything I was, changed, exchanged it, and someone was like, come to Yale. I was like, okay. And it's taken me years to work out these answers, right? What sort of kingdom is this? How is the nearness of the kingdom good news if it requires leaving behind whatever he had to find you, whatever you had been most invested into that point? And it's taken me years to work out these answers, and I'm still in process, but I'm really excited to share with you some of what I've learned this afternoon. And as it happens, our first story begins with Jesus teaching a group of people and not being sure whether they could hear him. Uh-huh. And so he's trying to figure out how, how, he can, how he can help these folks hear what he has to say. And so um, not, not having you know, even a battery-powered speaker uh, to, to, to use, he hops in a boat and he gets out on the Sea of Galilee. Actually, was out at the uh, Long Island Sound earlier this, uh, this afternoon with my, with my niece, um, whose voice was carrying very, very clearly. Her voice carries very clearly often anyway, but it's carrying especially clearly across the water. And so there's a natural sort of sound reinforcement strategy. If we all had a body of water um, in front of us, this might be going a little bit better. But so, so Jesus, as he's teaching, he just hops in a guy's boat and says, hey, can you, can you take me out a bit? And this guy, Simon, says, all right, fair, fair enough, I'll do it. And Jesus does the rest of his teaching. Maybe the sound reinforcement helped a little bit. I don't know. There were no motorcycles going by on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So he had that in his favor. But he gets to the end of this teaching, and then he says to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, and we've caught nothing. But if you say so, I will let down the nets. I'm the fisherman. You're the teacher. 
the teacher apparently didn't plan all that well in order to like actually be able to have people hear him as he was teaching. But like, I'm, I'm in. If you say so. If you say so, I'll do it. And so they go ahead and they let down the nets and they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats with so many fish that both boats began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Because he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon and presumably had brought over the other boat. Imagine, like, how, I mean, how that ends up going at the end of the day for them, if you know anything about the stories of these guys' lives. Like, turned upside down because they, they went in to go help um, with the miraculous catch of fish. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. And when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Now, not having caught any fish to that point, this is the end of their workday, the morning, the fish early in the morning, they were already sort of done for the day. Not having caught any fish was not just like a bummer. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't even just that they had nothing to sell or nothing to eat. It was worse than that. Um, rights to fish on the Sea of Galilee were really expensive. It was actually part of the whole like Roman imperial racket. Um, they were like, no, this, this lake, this lake belongs to Caesar. And if you're going to fish here, you're going to have to pay. Well, how much am I going to pay? Well, some shifty guy was going to keep asking you for more and more money until, right? It was basically a bidding process. And so you were, you were like bidding to like have the rights to, to fish. And eventually you would bid more money than you had and you would take out a loan either from the actual guy who was selling you those rights or his loan shark friend. And then before you even get started fishing, you are already so deeply in debt, you will likely never get out. And so not having any fish meant that like the loan shark was coming. <laughs> Right? I mean, this is like, I just want to give you a sense of the precarity of what they, what they were after. Sometimes we can romanticize. When we go fishing, I've been fishing like twice in my life. But when you go fishing, this is like a recreational activity. This is not what it is for these guys. And it wasn't even, even necessarily just like a, like, a, like, a, like a noble middle class profession. This was like just trying to like live from day to day and keep the tax man off their back. And so Jesus' call, the call of the kingdom, is a call out of this never-ending cycle of debt and labor in service of that debt. And indeed, they were fishermen. Jesus calls them, and they leave all of that behind. And in some of the other gospels, like in Mark, that was so important in my life, it's just a mystery. Like Jesus says, like, hey, come follow me. And then they drop everything and follow him. And you're like, why? This story maybe helps us give it a little sense, right? Like there's been this... There's been this crazy experience of seeing all these fish in the boats. Regardless, the basic claim is the same. The kingdom of God recruits us away from our projects. And yet, even in Mark, there's more to this story than just that, right? They don't just get called out of something. They get called into something. And there's, 
And, it's, and there's a connection actually between the two. There's something in Simon's original vocation that is preserved but transformed. And I think it's not just a clever turn of phrase that Jesus says, you've been fishing for fish, now you're going to fish for people. Uh, we're going to come back to that in a second. But first I want to tell you about my high school chemistry teacher, Mr. Hayes. Mr. Hayes was one of these like eccentric Okay, see, actually, as it turns out, Sean and I had the same high school chemistry teacher. Um, Mr. Hayes was like an eccentric, eccentric, eccentric guy. Um, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know if there were like some chemistry experience experiments that like went wrong that like left him like altered states. Like from time, I mean, really, like that. That's the that's the world that we're in. But Mr. Hayes also understood the world of. He taught honors chemistry, and he understood the world of the like climber high school student, right? The high school student who was like on their way, and for whom everybody in their path was just an obstacle to like getting the points that they need points. Do you remember this in school? I need points. What are you going to do with points? Points will get me grades. Grades will, I, I don't know, whatever. Whatever the, whatever the whole scheme is, it's a scheme too, right? Points will get me grades. Grades will get me into college. College will get me a great job. And a great job, that's, that's the foundation of a great life. Having, having you experienced that's not how life works. But that's how you think maybe when you're like 14 years old and you're in Mr. Hayes' honors chemistry class. And so Mr. Hayes had seen how this works. And so he would say to us at the beginning of the semester, he would say, I know how this works for you. You need points. You're, I don't know what you use them for. I don't know where you spend them. I, I, I don't know why you're so obsessed with points, but I know you need points. Let me just tell you right at the beginning, day one of class, the points bucket is full. I got so many points. I got points coming out my ears. You all are, are interacting with me as if points were like, were like, uh, were, like, were scarce. I got points for days. Let me trust you. Trust me. The thing that is scarce is knowledge of chemistry. <laughs> and so I have designed this class so that if you produce the knowledge of chemistry that I am after, you will get all the points you could possibly need. And I've never forgotten, I've, I mean, here I am, right? It's some 20 some years later, still talking about Mr. Hayes and his full bucket of points. And it reminds me of Jesus here with the boats full of fish. You think it's all about fish. You've got this whole scheme going on where people need you to produce fish. You need to produce fish. This, it's all about fish. Man, if what you need is fish, like I got fish for days. The fish bucket is full. It's so full I could sink your boats. And here's the connection, right? Points, I think points aren't bad. I don't know what they're good for, but points aren't bad. Fish aren't bad. Fish actually might be good. Um, but, but, but students need points, I guess. Humans need food. But neither points nor food is the purpose of a human life. And grade-grubbing college applicants and oppressed, indebted fishermen are under serious pressure to live their lives oriented against even what is good in their work. Fishing for people, cultivating communities of belonging, that actually may be closer to the purpose of our lives. And in a way, that's actually what fishing should have been about to begin with. If we, could, if we could have invited Simon to like bracket the tax man and take that, all that pressure out of it, 
we, we could see a, a different sort of picture, right, of what fishing might be. Fish are gifts from God and sustenance for people. And at its best, food, as, as theologian uh, Norman Wiersbe says, he says, food is God's love made delectable. And when we gather to share a meal, what we share is a nourishing mutual encounter between God, the seas from which come the fish, the fisher folk who catch the fish, and the people at the table. I think it's, it's something like, it's, you can get some approximation of this down at Stowe's Lobster Shack near the West Haven Beach. Um, that's, that, that could be a lot of my personal opinion. But Peter's fishing, when it comes down to it, should always ultimately have been about cultivating communities of belonging. And if at times it felt more like working off a debt to the tax man, if at times it felt like there were never enough fish, like all his life was good for was gathering enough, enough fish to scrape by, that was only because, of the bro- because the broken world around him and his own brokenness in response had reduced his noble work, offering the delectable love of God to his neighbors, had reduced all of that work to mere toil to make ends meet. And so Jesus' invitation to the kingdom might sound at first like recruitment away from fishing, but in the end, it's a renewal of what fishing was always truly about, a recruitment away from mere fish to true fish. A recruitment away from mere fishing to true fishing, fishing for people. And I take it this is a general principle of the kingdom. The kingdom creates goods, or t- t- rather, the kingdom takes created goods. We can look around us. There are plenty of created goods right here. And the kingdom makes them what they were always intended to be by making them more than just themselves. The kingdom takes mere bread and makes it true bread by making it more than just bread. We'll experience that in a moment when we take communion together. The kingdom takes mere fish and makes them true fish by making them more than fish. This is simply the nature of God's good creation and its relationship to God's kingdom. Part of what it means for something to be created good is for it to be more than merely itself. Every good thing is good in that it is and can be more than just itself. It is related to every other good thing that God has created and related in ways that we won't see fully realized until God's kingdom is fully present. And so every invitation into the kingdom is a call to see the good things of our lives become more than just themselves. And that is beautiful and rich, but it can also feel scary. Because as limited and circumscribed as our lives might be, they are nevertheless familiar to us. They're manageable. We know how to, how to it, it, Simon knew how to fish and pay his debts. And whatever, his, whatever our analog is, we know how to do that stuff. We know how to do our job and pay the bills. And sometimes that feels like all that we can handle, maybe even more than we can handle. But the more of the kingdom then can end up seeming overwhelming and risky. But Jesus' promise is that if we seek first the kingdom, we see even the good things that we give up, enriched and deepened. And I don't mean more money and more fish and more bread. I mean, I mean the, the good things of God's creation made, um, made richer because they're in right relationship with one another, related to God and related to one another in their being related to God. And if we refuse the call of the kingdom, we lose the goodness of what we hold back. As Jesus puts it, it's harsh, but he says it. In that case, even what we have is taken from us. 
I love this song. All right, sorry. Um, this, is, this is serious business. All right, the second story I want to tell you is a, it will, will, this will be much shorter because in some ways it's, it's a little bit more straightforward. The call of Levi. It's in the same chapter, just a few verses later. Jesus goes out and he sees a tax collector ne- named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and he left everything and he followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for Jesus in his house. In Levi's house. Jesus doesn't have a house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to Jesus' disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So Levi, Levi's a tax collector. I, I don't know. I, I, he he could have been, been the guy. He might have been like, the, like Simon's boss's boss's boss or something like that, right? Like he, he, I don't know. He could have been running the racket at the Sea of Galilee or he was running the racket somewhere else. Basically, the way it, the way it works is Caesar looked at his, his world and he said, I mean, I just conquered Palestine, right? What should I be able to get from Palestine? And someone told him, I don't know, X number of what would be for us millions of dollars. All right, cool. He goes to the local king and he says, you owe me X number of millions of dollars or things are going to be really bad for you. And so Herod would look around and be like, oh, shoot, how are we going to get that money? And, he, and he'd go to someone and say, uh, Juanita, uh, there's, a, there's a bridge over coming outside of Jerusalem if I let you collect taxes, how much do you think you could get from me? And when he would come up with a number, she'd be like, I bet I could do five million. And then Nate would say, like, I bet I could get you eight. And then when I needed it would be like, uh-uh, I could get you ten. And it goes higher and higher and higher. And now all of a sudden, Juanita owes Herod all of that money, whether or not she can get it. So Juanita recruits a bunch of people to go collect taxes at the bridge and to collect whatever they can. And how does she do that? Does she pay them a wage? No, no, no. She says to them, if I let you collect taxes at the bridge Monday morning, how much do you think you could get? And they, and they bid, and, they, and they, try, they come up with this crazy number. And now they owe that money to Juanita, whether or not they can get that from the tax. And every, it's just a pyramid scheme. Everybody owes everybody else money, and, and everybody's anxious, and it's all falling apart. And, at the, and that's who this guy, Levi, is. He's taken a contract out basically on his own people to help collect money for the foreign power. It's a bad scene. And Jesus calls him and he leaves everything and follows. And it's interesting, right? Because I take it, it may be that there is nothing redeeming about tax collecting in as much as Jesus does not call Levi to collect taxes for the kingdom. There's just not an, analo- there's just not an analogous thing. <laughs> Fishing for people, fair enough. Collecting taxes for the kingdom, there just may not be any such analogy. Instead, the kingdom call for Levi means leaving tax collecting behind entirely. And we can see evidence of this in Levi's response. It's a Levi's tax collecting life was all about money, and yet when the kingdom comes, call comes to him, you can tell that suddenly this, all this anxiety about money has left him, right? Because what's the first thing he does? He, he holds a banquet. He just lavishly spends all this money celebrating Jesus, getting, getting an opportunity for his friends to come and spend some time with Jesus, to hear what Jesus has to say, to see what Jesus might, uh, how Jesus might speak into and change the direction of their lives. 
And all of a sudden, gratitude takes the place of anxiety. And generosity takes the place of unending accumulation. And so I take it there's at least one really important difference between Simon's and Levi's stories, right? Um, You can fish for people. You can't tax collect for the kingdom. All right. But let's be clear. The difference between these two is not that one is righteous and the other is a sinner. Both of these guys are qualified. We shouldn't even use that word, but if they are qualified at all, they're qualified on the basis of knowing themselves as sinners, Simon falls on his face. Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Levi, too, knows himself as a sinner. And this this is what lands Levi in relationship with Jesus rather than on the outside with the Pharisees, right? When the Pharisees hear Jesus say that he came not for the righteous but for the sinners, they hear him saying that he's not on their side. When Levi hears Jesus say the same thing, he recognizes it instantly. Oh, sinners, that's me. Jesus, Jesus is on my side. But the fact is, if Jesus is on the side of sinners, if the kingdom of God is on the side of sinners, then Jesus is on everyone's side. The only way to end up on the outside is to not understand that you're on the inside. And so at the end of this story, I take it weird to imagine all of them, Simon, Andrew, James, John, Levi, and all of his unsavory friends, all of them partying hardy with Jesus. And it's at that point that I think we can most clearly turn back to the title of our our Sunday sermon series this summer. Behold the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God looks just like that party at Levi's house. Around the table, you've got repentant, less than obvious sinners, You've got repentant, obvious sinners. You've got not yet repentant, but, but uh, obvious sinners, but nonetheless wooed by Jesus, the anointed and soon-to-be king of the kingdom. And all of them together are enjoying a feast, rich and poor, sinners all. And if there's anyone excluded, it's just those who see that picture of the kingdom and see no place for themselves because they can't imagine themselves as sinners in any sense. For me, being recruited into the kingdom and away from my Yale project, as it were, has shared characteristics from each of these stories. To the extent that my project in life had become Yale or has become Yale, the prestige, the power, the exclusivity, which is to say the exclusion, I take it my call has looked like Levi's. There's there's not like subtle reframing, but there's a rather straightforward call from Jesus out of sin toward a different way of life. I was and I still am a sinner for whom Jesus has come, and my investment in in those systems is precisely one of... uh, is one of the clearest places in my life that I can see sin that Jesus is calling me out of. I am sick. I need a doctor. To the extent to which my Yale project was tapped into something more real, a pursuit of knowledge or a hunger for genuine wisdom, then my call has looked something like Simon's. I've gone from fishing to, for fish to fishing for people. The call of the kingdom has looked like allowing God to transform the knowledge I'm after from something that I can own to something that I can only ever share with others. 
Allowing the kingdom to transform my pursuit of knowledge means no longer looking for ideas that I can use to protect myself. That's what happens a lot behind those, behind those walls. People, a bunch of ang- anxiety is, the, is a connecting point for all of these. It's a bunch of ancient, ancient, anxious. A bunch of anxious folks using knowledge to protect ourselves. So allowing the kingdom to, to, to transform all that for me is mean, is, has meant not, no longer looking for ideas that I can use to protect myself or arg- arguments that I can use to, to beat others, to like win with, but rather seeking after others with whom I can come ever closer to understanding what it might mean to live lives worthy of our shared humanity. It looks ultimately like accepting Jesus' invitation to the table. And, inv- and inviting others as well. Taking my place at the table where all of us young and old and rich and poor, sinners all, all of us begin to experience the belonging of the kingdom at home with one another in the presence of God. And it means rejecting that lie that tries to tell me that I'm not like them, whoever them is for me. That somehow my sin is less bad than theirs that my projects are less less in need of kingdom revolution. That's not true. They are. And if we go through the rest of the gospel, especially the gospel of Luke that we're in this summer, we'll see this is one of Jesus' favorite images of the kingdom. The banquet of the kingdom. And the more I've allowed Jesus' invitation to the kingdom to transform my hopes and dreams, the more they look the more, the more those hopes and those dreams look like that banquet. So I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back up. And we're going to take a moment to, um, to receive communion together. I, it's always, in this whole pandemic season, it's been, it's been a, a work of imagination to imagine this as facilitating a banquet. But, but we're going to do it again. If you, don't, if you don't have elements for communion, you can just go ahead and raise your hand and someone will bring them by. Um, see a couple of hands. Um, yeah, just keep them up until, y- until you, get, uh, you get what you need. Love it. I see a hand, this hand back there too, a couple of hands. Awesome. When we take communion together, we are enacting, like, in, in our bodies, in space and time, right, this banquet of the kingdom. We're confessing that we are sinners who need a doctor to come and heal us. We're confessing that our projects are mixed bags at best, a mix of stuff that we just need to repent from and just turn turn away from, and and, and maybe uh, things that are just, that would pale in comparison to what they might be if we gave them into the hands of Jesus and let him transform them in 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 the coming of his kingdom that's happening in our midst. So I'd invite you, if you're a, a follower of Jesus, if you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, this is, this is what we will do. We will receive um, the bread, 
as Jesus says, is his body broken for us. And we will take and we will eat, confessing that we are sinners. And Jesus, we need you. We need you to come and be within us, to transform our hopes and our dreams, to help us even understand this beautiful world that you have given to us and the, and the, and the, and the, and the worthy lives that you have given us to live. Let's take and eat. And we will also um, drink, as it were, from the cup. And we will, um, and as we do so, again, we are confessing, Lord, we need you. Would you help us, um, would, you, would you renew our minds, renew our very selves in the new thing that you are doing in your coming kingdom? Let us drink. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here with us in the midst of all that is happening in our world, some of it deeply invested in things of your kingdom and quite intentionally invested in the things of your kingdom, some of it sort of accidentally invested in the things of your kingdom, give us eyes to see those things. Some of it at, at cross purposes and some of that stuff is right in the center of our own lives. Lord, would you have your way in us? Let us be captivated. Let us be recruited into the kingdom. Let us take our place at the table share in the richness of life that you have for us. Come and have your way.